Hey, Happy New Year. I hope everyone is safe and taking care of their mental health right now. Um, and if you're okay, I really hope you'll look around you to see whether anyone else you know might be suffering silently. Uh, at least here in the West, this is one of the most challenging times of the year for many people. After the holidays, at the darkest and coldest parts of the, the year, it can be a pretty depressing time. And uh, the resurgence of COVID, thanks to the Omicron variant, is certainly making what's already a tough time of year much harder on folks everywhere. So please look around you and see if anyone you know might be uh, suffering quietly and, and need some help. You know, sort of reach out and, and say hello. Also, uh, just a New Year request. If you're listening to this podcast and enjoying it, I'd really appreciate it if you either leave a review on Apple iTunes or even just share the episode with a friend or two who you think might be interested. And uh, last, don't miss the newsletter that accompanies this podcast. You can sign up at www.impactinvesting.how. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. While some might argue that the world is a much better place than it was thousands, hundreds of years, or even decades ago, it's hard not to feel like the world's problems are greater than ever. In the past five years alone, we've experienced a string of heart-wrenching global crises that have come fast and furious. Haiti, India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Puerto Rico, and the Dominican Republic have all been hit by terrible natural disasters. We've seen the Syrian civil war, the Venezuelan and Afghanistan refugee crises, and the Rohingya genocide, to name a few. Exacerbating these catastrophes is the COVID-19 global pandemic. So, despite our progress... It often feels as if the world's needs are greater than ever, and we have a long way to go before approaching anything resembling true equality. Enter today's guest, Natasha Freitas, co-founder and CEO of Needslist, a public benefit corporation creating human-centered solutions for communities displaced by climate change, conflict, and poverty worldwide. The idea for Needslist was sparked in 2015 at the height of the refugee crisis in Europe when Natasha was in France trying to help local Syrian refugee families, and her co-founder, Amanda Levinson, was in Philadelphia trying to figure out how to more quickly and effectively get goods and services across the globe to those in need. The challenge is that the needs of people in crises are overwhelming and constantly changing. It's difficult to keep track of what is needed and which organizations have the products, services, or expertise to meet those who are in need, to meet the needs of those who are suffering. In short, matching supply and demand has been incredibly difficult. That's when Natasha decided to hack an online wedding registry as a way to solve the problem, and in the process, the idea for Needslist was born. During the episode, Tasha and I discuss how and why it's so difficult to match supply from well-meaning groups and organizations with the needs of people on the ground who are suffering through crises. Our conversation spans the gamut from the original problem Tasha experienced firsthand, the journey to founding and funding needs list, the evolving nature of global crises over the past decade, and the challenges around impact measurement and management. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end when Natasha discusses the opportunities she's seeing to use machine learning and AI 
to gain extra insights into the nature and causes of global crises so we can address the problems before they happen. Natasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a longtime listener. Yeah, I'm excited because we, we've known each other for, I don't know, is it four years now? Maybe when we first met. And we I've known at a high level what Needsless does, but we haven't had tons of time to really just sit down and really get into the nitty gritty of it. And for as long as we've known each other, I feel like I should know more of the details behind uh, Needsless. So that's I'm excited to dive into that. Can you just give everybody an intro to who you are, what you're passionate about, what you're working on? Sure. Let's see. I'm Tasha Fridas. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Needsless. And I believe we met just about three years ago because okay. we moved to Toronto uh, shortly before that. And I know you okay. were one of the first people I met. And Needsless is a company developing software and solutions to power faster, more sustainable and more efficient humanitarian action. And so what that means is we provide white-labeled software to governments or foundations or anybody who is looking to coordinate a crisis response or that could be rapid onset crisis like natural disaster or longer term humanitarian aid situations. And our software matches needs to resources. So it allows company uh, organizations and companies to post needs, to post resources, and really basically leverage this wave of goodwill we see whenever there's a crisis from the private sector and from others who want to help and match that to needs on the ground. And so presumably then there, there is a, a lack of that ability right now to match those who have resources and that can look like a lot of different things to supporting those in crisis with those who need it. And so can maybe talk a little bit of like how and why those bottlenecks happen and how are you, how do you solve that problem? Like just at, at, the, at a high level. Sure. So we can look at COVID, for example, right? So when things really started to get bad and we went into lockdowns in March of 2020, we saw um, all these companies who wanted to help, right? So you saw um, the, there was the gin distillery that said, we're going to stop making gin, we're going to start making hand sanitizer, which was fantastic. But then they said, wait, what do we do with all this hand mm -hmm. sanitizer? There wasn't an easy way for them to know where it was needed. And that we saw that in every single kind of vertical of, of our society happening over and over again. What happens in, in those contexts is people usually look for the, the public sector or foundations or anybody who's bringing together community. And unfortunately, we don't, as this is true across the world, not just in Canada, is that nobody had good um, systems for this. So usually what happens is there's like somebody at city hall or somebody at the provincial level or in the states at the state level who's like literally sitting on the phone answering calls <laughs> and they're saying like, hi, hi, madam at the gin distillery. How can I help you? And then they're like writing it down and maybe there's a spreadsheet and a lot of this is happening with sticky notes. It's just really struck me over and over again how you would expect like FEMA to have a system in place. But in fact, the guy from FEMA said, oh, he saw our software and he said, wow, I was handling Hurricane Sandy and we were putting together sticky notes and string to connect needs to resources. So Unfortunately, that the public sector, when it comes to emergency responses, is painfully outdated. And FEMA is FEMA is the Federal Emergency Management Association in the in the state. So they're the main ones who are responding to the multitude of natural disasters, primarily, but other emergencies as well. It's one of the 
most advanced and certainly economically powerful countries in the world still has a very basic problem with trying to match needs. Still, it sounds like it's done very on an analog basis, uh, kind of that's, that's exactly yeah. right. And even look at before COVID, when we first got started, what we found out is that when there would be the wildfires we saw in the West or hurricanes throughout the South, what would happen is there would be conference calls where the states would pull together all the different nonprofits and other players who are working to respond. And they would have these daily conference call check-ins where they would start out. This was even, nobody was even on Zoom at this point. And I'm only talking like two years ago, three years ago. Mm. It would, the first 10 minutes would be everybody saying their name and their organization. Oh, and somebody's like <laughs> writing it down and sending out notes later. That's what we're talking uh, about. I'm imagining, and, and this is probably too reductive, but maybe it illustrates the point, like a bunch of kids around like with hockey cards, need them, got them, need them, got and like trying to figure out, okay, who's got what and <laughs> who, who that, needs what and how can we make a trade here? <laughs> That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. Oh, yeah. boy. Okay. Talk a little bit about, like, how did you get involved in this? You've got a background in master's in community planning. Can you maybe talk a little bit about your background, your education, and how that led you to discovering this problem? I think, like, most people, how would you even come across this problem? Yeah. And like a lot of founders, I came across this problem really serendipitously through direct experience. So my background is in, it is in community planning, and I've always been really interested in the role of storytelling as a way to connect communities. And when I was in graduate school, I got exposed to a, a new approach at the time called digital storytelling. This, of course, was pre-Instagram and Twitter, and but it was really, it was when New media tools were becoming embedded in everybody's personal computers. So what I started doing was teaching nonprofits and other organizations how to make their own videos and how to tell their own stories in order to communicate more effectively to either raise funds or do outreach or do advocacy work. And so I've always worked in this kind of intersection with social impact and technology. I had my own company for about 15 years, and I've always had a strong passion around migration and refugee issues. So a lot of the work I was doing was with organizations that were supporting refugees. And I was working on the ground supporting refugees directly when I saw that there wasn't, there weren't any tools to communicate needs in real time. So I was living in France. I was volunteering helping a number of Syrian refugees who had just arrived and had not tapped into the, the social network that France had to offer and was just looking for better ways to communicate needs because like FEMA, <laughs> it was being done through these painful conference calls or email lists that became outdated immediately. So I uh, actually ended up using a wedding registry to, which was like our first MVP for Needless. <laughs> I was the bride. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just sent it out to everybody who wanted the help so they could see how they could help in real time. And we didn't end up with five blenders. We right. ended up with one thing that you needed. Where? So where are you from originally? You're American. I grew but up in the States. In, yeah. Where yeah. In New York. I New grew York. up in New York. Okay. Yeah. So you like your, your undergraduates in international relations, you went to Brown. Is that, is that right? That's right. From what yeah. I remember. And so what got you involved? What got you interested in international relations in the first place? Like international you know, issues in general, what causes you to yeah. start thinking globally at a young age? Yeah, I grew up in a pretty homogeneous suburb of New York. And somewhere along the line in high school, I just started saying, what else is out there? Just curiosity and interest and realizing, I think there become there comes a point when people are, lots of people when they're teenagers start thinking like they realize they're somewhere else out in the world besides their immediate surroundings. 
I got really interested in just seeing the world, basically. I think I got bit by a little bit of wanderlust. And I ended up spending a summer in Thailand volunteering through a community service program where we were building a school in north of Thailand and then working, teaching English in a refugee camp. And I just, that was a hook for me. I was really interested when I came back. I was 17. And from there on, I said, I, there are people all over the world that really need to come to places like the States or other places where they can have freedom. And then how can we help them resettle and feel comfortable here? So Mm. that's where I got interested in international relations. So I went, when I went to university, I knew that's what I wanted to study. And so you finished up at Brown, you, you did some work, some work for a while before going back to do a master's and you you studied, I think at MIT, that's That's where you did master's in community planning. Can you talk a little bit about what, like what's involved in, in studying community planning? It's not a degree I'm familiar with. Yeah, the degree itself is actually city planning. So it's okay. urban studies and uh, urban planning. And then within that, you can focus on different areas. And I was really okay. focusing on community development. I spent my time between undergraduate and graduate school working in Tucson, Arizona, primarily with Mexican immigrants. And I was uh, really involved in community organizing at that time and was really just interested in and motivated by seeing the the power that people had to affect change in their communities when they organized effectively. And so I went back to school really thinking I would be focusing on public policy and go into policy, but I instead I ended up getting hooked in this this kind of storytelling world. Mm. And I do come from a family of entrepreneurs. So just I figured out pretty early on that I didn't want to work for other people. And I ended up finishing my degree and just started freelancing on the side and had a part-time job at um, MIT, which was fantastic. Do both for a while and got to a point where I could really set off on my own and do my own business. Did you have a particular experience around storytelling that made it really like hit home for you? That Oh, wow, this is really powerful. I want to spend my time. Yeah, actually. So when I was in my mid-20s living in Tucson, um, a lot of the work I was doing was teaching English. And then also I was teaching English on one side and also teaching, doing this community organizing work. And I remember we were involved in a living wage campaign. I think at that point it was trying to get $10 an hour for a living wage. And I became, I was doing that on the side, was coaching people who were getting up in front of city council publicly to testify and give testimony about the impact of their wages. And Mm. so I got to work with one guy who was just talking, he worked as a custodian in the school district, made something like $8 an hour and just talked about how he had to go on food stamps and get public assistance in order to support his family despite working full time. And he, what was really profound for me is that I spent a couple hours working with him. He got up and he gave this incredible speech to the city council. And he, that time he had written it all on paper, like a notebook. And when he walked off the stage, I remember he crumpled up the paper and he threw it in the trash. And it just really struck me like something, uh, a switch went off in my head because I, it, we had spent all this time kind of crafting the story, which had this tremendous impact. And then he was throwing it in the trash. And I just started thinking about how are we going to save these stories and how do we create a community legacy out of these stories as well? So I got really interested in oral history and video and audio and the, again, free podcasts, but that's a lot of the work I was doing. Hmm. Fascinating. That's really interesting. Yeah. I've just had experiences in my own life where you just, you can, the content you can describe, you can basically offer the content of your story. <laughs> 
where you know one that's just factual and the other where you're illustrating actually telling a story and weaving the the content of your story into the into the the flourishes if you will the details that bring it alive and it's such a powerful transformation that happens one doesn't get anybody to do anything and the other can move mountains and when you work with people on their story even i like i find it's often even if i'm better at helping other people with their story than telling my own and i think probably all of us to some to face that so it's such a powerful thing to be able to provide to somebody especially somebody vulnerable who often have the most powerful stories it's true and it's something i really do miss about that being the focus of my work. But one thing, like you said, it's always easier to help others mm-hmm. tell their story. And so I found that oftentimes before pitch competitions or in those kind of, I've been in a few different incubator or accelerator programs and helping people figure out how to tell to pitch, which is essentially telling your story. I love helping other people do that. And it's been really rewarding and this kind of like glimpse into my previous work life too. So Yeah, yeah, I bet. So you finish up MIT, you spent some time working there part-time and then you're doing some consulting and providing this kind of multimedia, is it, was it training, did you say around yeah, that work for we, profits? Yeah, we ran a lot of workshops in video production, storytelling, audio, all of that. So, so helping like uh, nonprofits primarily tell better stories to raise essentially more capital and engagement. Exactly. It was, it was really social impact writ large, any mission driven organization, I'd say it was about. nonprofits, and then did some work with public sector universities, higher education, as well as a couple different corporations who were early on in their social impact journeys as well. And you ended up doing that for quite a while, didn't you? I did it for 15 years until I started Needslist. And there was a gradual transition really from doing that. There was about, I'd say, a year and a half where I was doing Needslist related work on the side, even before I incorporated, before I finally decided to jump in and just do it. Hmm. So talk about that then. What makes you decide to make that leap and to establish needs lists? I think it was a combination of seeing that there really was a, a problem that I was personally invested in and wanted to solve. And there was this incredible kind of moment in time in 2015 and 2016 where it really felt like, no, it felt to me anyway, that there were just thousands and thousands of people trying to support this kind of moment of crisis. And it all seemed very inefficient that people just didn't know how to help effectively. And because of that, and because I was looking to build a technology platform to help solve for that problem, we were able to leverage incredible resources pro bono at the time. So I connected with my co-founder, Amanda Levinson, around that time. We knew each other previously, but we were both really interested in in this, how to use technology to support refugees. And when we started Needsless, we got like a UX designer to do our mock-ups for free. We got a friend of mine did our first site for free. We got marketing advice for free. Like, I can't believe now how fortunate we were in in being able to access all these resources. And there's no way we would have gotten off the ground if we didn't have that. So I think I felt very kind of nourished by this whole community of people who really believed that this problem we were trying to solve needed to be solved. And that helped motivate me to say, okay, I'm going to take the plunge here. And I certainly didn't, I call myself an accidental startup founder. I certainly never meant to start a tech startup in my forties with two young kids, but there I was. (laughs) Yeah. It makes it extra challenging. And I love that it, 
this was 2015, 2016 that you're starting to think about launching Needless. And then I think, what yeah. was it, 2017 that you like officially? We actually formed, we officially incorporated it in the summer of 2016. So we okay. just celebrated our fifth birthday in August. Oh, congrats. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> but I, 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 it strikes me that it is around that time and still true today, we've gone through this period of everything has to have a technology solution because investors who want to invest in it see you know, that it's a more scalable business model. And I see a lot of social businesses and even just any new business using technology almost blindly. In a lot of cases, technology is a wonderful way to solve a problem. And in other cases, you're taking a tech solution where the tech hasn't quite there yet to be able to provide a meaningful solution yet. Folks are still working on it. And that's, you almost have to for the to be able to raise any money these days, it feels like there's a lot of incubators and accelerators and startup capital for tech-enabled solutions because of the scalability of the model. But this seems to me like genuinely requires a technology to solve an analog problem where there's just, it's just, it doesn't need people to solve this issue of where are the needs and you know, where's the supply and demand and let's match them in a marketplace. So I love that it, it's actually using technology where it's actually needed and it doesn't require humans to, to do all this legwork. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Dave, but I also think one of the reasons we've had success is because we've understood the limits of technology from the beginning. And we were never a company that said this is going to solve, we have a tech right. solution that's going to solve the problem of crisis response or displacement or humanitarian mm -hmm. aid. Like, absolutely not. I think because our leadership team all comes from a really strong background of policy as well and history and political science that we understand that at the end of the day, you need people yeah. as well to solve solutions. And at the same time, when you look at the technology solutions that we have in basically every other sector of society, where we have marketplace solutions for every other vertical you can think of. It's just a no-brainer that want to bring a marketplace solution to humanitarian action, not to, to solve it in and of itself, but to make life easier for everybody. Yeah. So th that's a great segue, actually, because there was a there's a description of needs list, and I'm sure that's evolved over time, but there's one on LinkedIn that that talks about needsless providing. I'll read it and I, I'd love for you to talk about it because it seems very carefully constructed. And I'd love for you to just respond to to some of that. And I think it maybe illustrates the point that you're making that it's not just about technology. Technology may be the kind of backbone or infrastructure, but it need, it requires a whole bunch of other more soft uh, aspects to it. Needsless provides solutions for a new era of global crises, locally powered, collaborative, tech enabled and ground tech enabled and grounded in dignity. That's a pretty powerful two sentences. Can you, and I would imagine you chose each of those terms very carefully. Can you talk about how that's constructed? What are those aspects and how, why are they important to need? Yeah, those four aspects of uh, locally powered, tech enabled, collaborative and grounded in dignity are actually our values as a company and have been since the beginning. So when we looked at the global problems of crisis response, we saw that those were four glaring areas that were absent. If you look to local communities, the, the reality is that local communities often and usually are the ones to respond. They're the ones before, during, and after a crisis, and they often have the best solutions. But our typical systems of aid, and this better than I do, Dave, you have a long history working in the aid sector, is our typical systems is to 
have people swoop in from the outside, try to solve the problem and then leave. So there was, we really wanted to put local at the center of everything we did. We intentionally didn't put technology first because that's, again, like the no brainer is that, yes, like tech is not, uh, tech is one of these four tenets. We need to use technology, but we need to use it thoughtfully. We've always had a very user-centered approach. So we've been partnering with frontline responders from the very beginning to develop our tools. And it's not something we think this really sets us apart as a company. We we're not a couple of guys hanging out eating Rami in our garage. We were facing the problems directly that we were trying to solve and been working very collaboratively with organizations around the world from the beginning. And then I think collaborative collaboration has been a huge component of our approach from the beginning. Again, because we saw the aid sector ended up being siloed and Oftentimes, there's a competition for resources that is just problematic when you look at the kind of challenges around like the climate emergency and displacement and all these huge challenges. We knew that we had to be working with others, whether it was through a technical API integration or just sharing resources and knowledge. And then the last one of grounded in dignity is just something that we didn't want to forget the people that we're trying at the center who are suffering from COVID or from conflict or from weather-induced disasters that providing aid with dignity is not something that can be done through technology alone. So that we wanted to keep that at the forefront as well. I love it. Well, we want to keep drilling through some of this here to keep unpacking this a bit, but maybe I just, before we do that, is there something that that first sentence is providing solutions for a new era of global crises? Is there something about the nature of crises that we're seeing these days that is changing, that's different than maybe what we've seen in the past? Yeah, David, it's unbelievable to me how much the nature of crisis, like how we think about crisis has changed in the past five years. So Mm -hmm. even when we first got started, we were explicitly focused on the refugee crisis. You can't see me if you're listening out there, but I'm (laughs) using air quotes here. And what happened is I remember I was in an accelerator in Oslo. I was at that. We were part of the Catapult Accelerator, which is a technology accelerator. And we were told very explicitly, as a startup, you do one thing. You do one thing, focus on a specific problem, specific geography. And right while I was learning that, Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Harvey hit back to back. And so some of our users who are nonprofits working with refugees in Greece were based in Texas and California, and the wildfires were happening as well. And they said, can we use um, your software to communicate needs about the wildfires and Hurricane Harvey? And it was like, ah, you know, what do we do? We're supposed to be focusing on one thing and doing it well. And I remember talking to our mentors and they said, what if, if your users are asking for this, just go with it. And so that was the first hint that there was, there were other types of crises that this could be applicable for. But of course, this was year after year. The, the nature of natural disasters over the fi- past five years has escalated exponentially. And then that's not even looking at what's happened before COVID, right? And now we've got what's happening in Afghanistan. And so I think we need to rethink crisis. When we're referring to a new era of crisis, as crisis is a new normal. There is a crisis going on at any point in the world. And then if you look at what we're calling the climate emergency now, it is a crisis. And it's affecting displacement dramatically. And so it's really changed the way we thought of, think about our tools and the way we think about crisis as well, because it's something that like, it's not just 
um, Northern California or BC that needs to think about wildfires, where we all need to be prepared to be more resilient for this new era of crisis response. I'm going to uh, maybe share a thought with you and just get your kind of response and feedback to it. I was having a, a short, like a little Twitter conversation interaction around this idea of the, you know, ESG and these three different factors and in particular kind of the E and the S as the two kind of big categories or verticals of impact, if you will. And uh, it feels to me like this, uh, this idea that there are these two separate categories is very artificial and is an our fairly arbitrary distinction in that there's not actually two separate categories. There's impact and impact can happen in a lot of different ways and at both environment and, and, and social such that they're one and the same. They're inter, you know, interconnected in ways that can't be pulled apart. For instance, when there is a climate crisis that has social impacts and when there's a social crisis around wealth inequality, we can see how that impacts the environment. And so I think it feels very artificial that we like to create these labels and separate them in our minds to make it easier to comprehend and understand. But it, when people talk about what's more important, E or S, I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. They're the same thing. Do you feel that way? Do you see that kind of play out? In Absolutely. At the beginning of when we started Needless, climate displacement was actually very far from, it, it seemed like a subset. And now we think of displacement, the the majority of it is actually due to climate-related emergencies and, and not just rapid onset emergencies, but lack of water and unsustainable living conditions. So I think we're seeing that over and over. And frankly, we probably wouldn't care about the E so much if it didn't affect the S. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. yeah. Okay, that's awesome. I, I want to get into some examples of like specific examples of partner, you know, organizations you partner with to solve you know, problems. And maybe through that, if you could refer back to, I'd like to put a little more meat on the bones of why is it important that it's locally powered and grounded in dignity and be collaborative. But maybe I'll jump to some examples just from that I just would have gleaned from the website and in ways that you're working. And I'll mention a few and you can just jump in with wherever you want to go. But I think there was some matching kind of PPE manufacturing needs to conflicted areas where they need the kind of personal protective equipment from COVID. There's work around Venezuela's mass displacement and identifying needs and resources across the community level in Latin America. And you've got some project, I think, with TripAdvisor engaging employees in skilled remote volunteering. Does any of those sort of stand out to you as a good example of you want to use to illustrate how you work and collaborate and Sure. I think the the project that we're running around local manufacturing with Field Ready is a great example of local power. It's been that ex project really has blown my mind. So essentially, we're working with a nonprofit organization called Field Ready. They're based in the States, but they work globally. And their whole focus and kind of thesis is addressing this pro this challenge of bringing in aid externally, especially in conflict displaced, uh, conflict affected communities is really challenging. You're mm -hmm. dealing with like months and months of like shipping and logistics and customs. And oftentimes those same items might be manufactured locally, but people who are providing aid don't know how to buy them or procure them. And so what they're doing is they've licensed our software. They have frontline responders in four countries right now using our software to identify needs. And these are primarily refugee-led organizations, locally-based organizations, the people on the ground who really know what's needed. They're putting in specific needs around PPE. These are all 
places where vaccines have barely reached, if at all. And then they're matched with local factories and local folks who were actually producing the PPE. And in some cases, even uh, like maker spaces where they've got in the refugee camp in northern Kenya, they've got women making soap and other forms of PPE and, and local who are refugees themselves in local spaces. So there, it's completely breaking this whole cycle of bringing in aid from afar and matching needs to resources locally. So it's been great. We get these incredible photos of like face shields made in Uganda being distributed in camps in Uganda. And just yesterday, like I get a notification every time there's a match on our, any of our platforms. And like on Monday, I had all these like needs being matched in Iraq. And yesterday it was Bangladesh and 800 bars of soap and 800 face shields and whatever mm -hmm. it is. It's been really exciting. We're really happy with that project and it's been a great example. And then in the project you mentioned in Latin America, it's also been fantastic as well in terms of both the, the local aspects, but also the collaborative aspect. That's a project that's being run through four local partners, including the, for example, the Scalabrini International Migration Network, which is an offshoot of the church, which is serving mm -hmm. refugees who are partnering with a local like LGBTQI organization serving migrants and that health NGO. And so you've got all these incredible partners coming together to help identify what the needs are and get them met and invite local businesses to meet them too. Wow. That's uh that's amazing. I love it. Those are two really great examples. And it, so our, I guess I have a few questions. How do you find these grassroots local community organizations? Like they need to hear about you and then they presumably need to be able to enter somewhere. You've got some sort of platform, a tech platform that allows them to enter what they're capable of providing and or on the other side, what their needs are. Is that effectively, maybe I'm being overly reductive, but effectively is that what's happening on both ends? Needs and supply are being entered into a system that then intelligently connects them? Yes, that's absolutely right. The difference and probably the evolution of the company since we first met, Dave, is when we, I think when you and I first met, we were creating this open online marketplace at Needslist. And somewhere along, I think it was in 2019, we realized that if we focused on the technology and essentially white labeled the software for organizations that already mm. had the demand and supply and needed the marketplace, it would just make a lot more sense um, because we were finding that we had to build the technology and then the marketplaces. Yeah. We're also like constantly trying to reach out to companies and yeah. sell into companies and uh, find all these individual local organizations. And so we we pivoted and we ended up, we've developed this white label model where we license the software to an organization that already has those contacts. And it's their job to, yeah. to onboard the manufacturers, to onboard the local organization. So we already have a lot of those contacts from previously. And we do, a, our, our work is not just in, in licensing, but also supporting the model and helping people think through what what's involved when, marketing to both sides, but we don't do it directly anymore. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So there's, presumably there's a, the license fee, you provide some training for how they can get this up and running and manage on an ongoing basis. That's exactly right. And some of our initiatives are higher touch and some are lower touch. So we're working right now with the state of North Carolina who has licensed our software to be used for hurricane response as well as longer term economic recovery, flooding, what have you. And 
We provided a couple onboarding and training sessions at the very beginning, and then they, the state has just taken it and run with it. And they have over 50 organizations and local businesses already on board. And on the other side, we're working just recently with the Welcome.us campaign, which is a large campaign supporting the 50,000 plus Afghans arriving in the States. Mm. And in that case, we're working with all nine official resettlement agencies in the state, local levels, private sector, and it's much more of a hands-on project. Our business model really fluctuates depending on what the needs are of the organization that we work. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's just it sort of hitting me the scale and frequency of these crises. If you had told me, given the number of things we've just talked about in this short period of time, if that had happened, if Needsless had been around for 20, 30 years, it'd be like, oh, okay, but this is, we're talking about a lot of this happening in the past 2016, summer of 2016, as we were official incorporation. That's, it's just hitting me how frequent and how big these crises are. Absolutely. And for us, it's been this real full circle moment when we are talking to all these organizations who are really scaling up to support all the Afghans arriving in both Canada and the States right now. And where they're saying, how do you already have this software? And we said, we started building the software in response to the last large conflict affected displacement, which was the Syrian crisis in 2015, yep. 2015. And then people understand this isn't a platform that we built in the last six weeks, but yeah. it's been evolving over the last five years. How many people are at Needsless now? Our team has eight folks in-house and then we work with an outsourced development team in Argentina. Oh, wow. And we've been remote from day one, Dave. So about half our team is here in Toronto. Our CTO is here, our UX designer, a couple other folks, but my co-founder, our product lead is in the States. So we're distributed and we were very well prepared to move into COVID, but we've sure missed meeting in person and getting together at conferences and workshops. Yeah, I can imagine. What made you decide to launch out of Canada? Was that a personal decision to come to Toronto and then you just happened to run it out of here or did you come here to launch it? It was a personal decision, but it, I will say it was a personal decision affected by the fact that I knew there was a really strong tech and impact scene here too, mm. as well as with Canada's open approach to migration and the newcomers here, that yeah. was really appealing as well. My family is personally, we're just submitting our third application for private sponsorship for a refugee here. And that direct work definitely helps inform the work that we're doing at Needsless too. Oh, that's amazing. Good for you. My my wife and I had sponsored a Syrian family and I've got a good sense for the amount of time, effort, and energy that's that's involved if you're gonna, you know, do it well and be hands-on and and how just, you know, amazing the impactful it is and the learning experience that comes with that and the personal growth and development. It's it's pretty profound. So Kudos. It That's is and amazing. actually part of what's going on in my mind the whole time we're doing this is why isn't there are better technology to support this. I feel like every group of five that is starting from scratch and recreating the same Google spreadsheets and figuring out the, I, I just went with someone else to go to the bank to get the account set up. And I said, we'll try TD this time because it didn't work so well yeah. with the other bank. So it, I'm hoping longer term we can, we're starting to explore what it would look like to build some, a platform to help facilitate sponsorship as well. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. Cause I, we've been in that position as well. Cause when people find out that you've done it before you get, you know, sort of lots of questions 
from folks and we're happy to do that and we provide feedback and support, but it's a hundred percent. Why is there not more support for those who, why aren't we facilitating making this easier for people who want to sponsor and bring in families and make it, yeah, anyway. Yeah. If you ever need <laughs> any help on that, if you decide to tackle it. Sure, uh, and if anyone out there is listening, that's uh, some, if they're interested in partnering on that, definitely yeah. reach out. Yeah, that's really smart. Yeah. Can you talk maybe just a little bit about the genesis of what, how and where do you come across your, these kind of opportunities to partner and for needless to kind of step in and, and solve a problem? What does that look like in practice? In practice, it probably looks like any B2B sales, right? So yep. long-term, long-term, long lead relationships, a combination of inbound and outbound. So because we're targeting public sector and multilaterals and larger organizations, for the most part, it's very slow, Dave. Mm -hmm. And so we see these relationships, then they might manifest a few years later. We have had a nation of nonprofits saying, we want to work with you. How do we do this? And then applying jointly for funding. We've gotten support from Grand Challenges Canada through the Humanitarian Grand Challenges, which was really incredible in both uh, legitimizing the model and also raising our profile in the U.S. government. So what happened is as a result of folks at USAID knowing us through the work we were doing with Grand Challenges and then directly the work that we're doing to support Venezuelan migrants is also supported by USAID. They have told other departments in the States about us. So mm. I actually got a call at the end of August from somebody at the National Security Council saying, hey, would you be interested in supporting Afghan resettlement? And I said, wait, this is the White House calling me. That's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. That's so the, amazing. And it was because somebody at USAID had given their name. But just like anything, it's all about relationships and networking. And frankly, not being able to leave that house or travel for 18 months has been really challenging for us. I think it's quite hard to get your name out there when you can't be in person speaking at conferences and doing that kind of after hours network. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So the the revenue model then sounds like it's a licensing fee. Is it some sort of monthly recurring revenue business model? Are there other kind of streams of revenue other than licensing of the software? It's primarily licensing either monthly or annual. And then um, there are consulting fees that we also build in or do separately. So sometimes people want us to just scope something out or get input on on that as well, but primarily licensing. Okay. And just to drive home the point that it's not, you, while you work a lot with nonprofits and you know, public sector, it's not, you. It needless itself as a is a, a for-profit business and presumably because it allows you to grow and scale better than addresses the sustainability of needsless better than a nonprofit model would. That's right. We thought we were, when we were forming the company at the very beginning, we looked at the sector, which is primarily driven by nonprofits and really thought a for-profit approach could complement it. And then we wouldn't be competing for the same funding as yeah. NGOs, but rather have a different revenue model. We also thought, and I'm not, I actually am not convinced this is true, Dave, but at the time we thought it would be easier to get seed investment as a for-profit tech company than it would as a nonprofit. And I actually am not sure that's true. I think there's a lot of talk about investing in social impact tech and very few checks that yeah. follow and raising a seed round was incredibly difficult for us. And we did it. We raised a million dollars and that was fantastic, but it was brutal. It took much longer than I anticipated. And I don't know that it would it was any easier than it would have been if we were 
incorporated as a nonprofit because we've had multiple opportunities that we weren't able to take advantage of because we weren't eligible as a company. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me entirely to hear you say that, especially here in Canada. I feel like there's a very big talk action gap. Lots of people talking about wanting to make you know, social impact investments and a lot fewer people and organizations actually writing meaningful checks. Do you think that would have been true if you were based in the U.S.? Would you think it would have been any easier to raise the investment capital? Our company, so we have a Canadian subsidiary of the U.S. company, which is okay. a Delaware Public Benefit Corporation. Okay. We, so almost with the exception of Marigold Capital, all of our investors are based in the States. All had challenges. Yeah. I think mm. it was challenging there. I think when we moved here, when we moved to Toronto, it was about a month later when the federal government announced the social investment financing of, what is that, like $700 million. And yep. I thought, oh man, this is like great timing. <laughs> yeah. When we're ready to raise Perfect. money here in Canada, we'll have access. And I'm certainly, this is what, three years later, and mm, I haven't seen it, no. how any startups can directly benefit from that. So yeah. I think there's a huge gap. I think when it comes to gender lens investing as well, we hear about all this money available for women-led companies. And I've had plenty of guys say, oh, it won't be hard for you to raise because everybody wants to invest in women. And again, when it comes to the checks, that's just not the case. So yeah. we're very fortunate to have raised from the majority of our investors, our impact investors or, or gender lens investors. But it's it was certainly challenging. And and where did that what did that that campaign, if you will, to raise that capital, the seed round, what did that look like? Is that a lot of speaking to a lot of just personal connections? Are they impact funds for the most part, or you know, foundations, government, a whole everything? It was a mix and really leveraging every ounce of social capital that we had. I think we are tremendously fortunate that neither Amanda or I came from, we had never raised investment money before, but we knew people who had or knew people who had. So one of our very early investors, Heather Henyon, came on as a board member. She's a friend of a friend who has been instrumental in giving us advice. I didn't know how, I knew how to do a budget. I'd been running sure. a business, but I didn't know how to do projections in the kind of way that an investor would want to see. I didn't know how to build a deck. She really walked us through those aspects of it. But we got introduced through a personal connection to the Midyar Network in 2018, and they came on as an early investor. And once we had their stamp of approval, that was really just, it, it changed everything for us. I think I really understand now how having that kind of one nod in your direction can make everybody else want to jump on board. So that was fantastic. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's true in the regular investment world. You get the right VC firm to make an investment and then all of a sudden everyone else is interested. So, yeah. 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 Can you talk a little bit about what, what opportunities do you see that you you know, maybe haven't been able to cap? So, so maybe first of all, these are related questions. What opportunities do you see out there that you'd like to capitalize on and what type do you need? Do you see raising additional um, capital going forward? Sure. From the very beginning, we've been really interested in how to build AI into our tools. The potential of bringing machine learning and laying on this hmm. data set we're collecting, which has never been collected before about what aggregating very granular needs from the front line. So bringing all that data together 
we're very interested in what would happen if you start taking that data and layer it on to weather-related data, climate yeah, data, yeah. migration data, census data, health data, and start to predict what's needed before crises hit. And we've had that vision for years now. Um, and the reality is that building that out is very expensive. So we're not an AI-first company, but it's always been part of our longer vision. And in order to get there, we will need to raise capital in the future. For now, we're really excited about the initiatives that we're leading and our partners and proving out our model. But in the future, that's where the future of aid is, I believe. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really uh, brilliant. The more and more we can focus on prevention, in addition to the, the solving the acute problems right now, the better. And of course, yeah, the the as you say, the data that you're collecting is others aren't collecting it, and it's you know so incredibly um, valuable. So the, I love that the it's a real true impact business, right? The, the more successful you are, the more that you grow, the more problems you'll solve, and the better you're going to get at solving them. As distinct from ESG type investments or sustainable investments, where Nike or Danone sell more of shoes or food, it's great. It's not solving integrate solving problems at the same fundamental level as a true kind of impact uh, investment business. So I think this is a really great example of a pure impact investment play because some of those lur- those lines can blur, right, between traditional for-profit and a real kind of impact business. And I get that question a lot from folks who are coming into the industry is, well, what's the difference between ESG and impact investing? And so I think this is a really great example. <laughs> That's right. And for us, it was very clear from the beginning. When we made the decision to incorporate as a for-profit, we knew that we wanted to bake impact into every aspect of the company. So it wasn't an afterthought. So our our business agenda and revenue model was not going to be in competition with our impact model. And of course, there are always decisions to be made along the way. It's not like ever black and white. But Thinking that through from the beginning, making sure that our investors understood our values and vision from the beginning has been really key to our work and will continue to be. Yeah. Last, uh, maybe last um, major topic, Ariel, I'll ask you about is how do you think about your kind of impact measurement? How important is that to you? I'm personally always torn between the idea that what gets measured gets managed and we want to learn about how we can get better at making your impact. But I also, at the same time, feel the tension between that and when we focus on quantifying impact, it leads us to, you know, really focus on numbers rather than the things that are harder to quantify and measure. And that's not always to the benefit of actually delivering real meaningful impact. And so I'd love to hear about how you think about measuring your and managing your impact. It's a really good question. Our, um, our main KPI in that area has evolved a bit, but for the last few years, it's we've been measuring impact by the dollar value of needs met. And actually, in the first couple of years, that dollar value was you know just over $2 million. And this year, we doubled it already. Awesome. So we're really excited about that. And at the same time, we've started to think about it in much more nuanced ways because what we've seen is oftentimes you can reach a more beneficiaries without spending a lot of money. So maybe that's not necessarily the best metric. So for example, the initiative we're running in Venezuela called Red Recuperación, that our, we were shooting to get something like $500,000 of needs met this year. And in fact, and we were shooting to reach 60,000 beneficiaries. And what we found is that we've already 
exceeded the number of beneficiaries, but we've only we're only at about a hundred thousand dollars of needs met. Now, does, is that a bad thing that we've actually invested less money to reach more people? I don't right. think so. I would imagine that we're going to start thinking more along the lines of who we're reaching, how many people we're reaching. We're also building in reporting tools to our software so we can see how many women we're reaching, how many youth look at it in terms of how we're reaching vulnerable populations, because those are typically the hardest to reach Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. The the dollar value, when you say dollar value, it would be like the dollar, the cost of the the good, or I think it's typically goods. Maybe it's a service, it can be service as well. But the, let's take a good, for instance, so it's per, some sort of personal protective equipment. It's the cost of that. That's exactly. the dollar value. Yeah. So that that's seems right. to me, and that seems, I love, I actually, this is a really great example to talk about because I think with any impact investment business, you have to start somewhere and you're small, typically you're constrained with resources and how are you going to measure impact and starting somewhere is better than nowhere. And so the dollar value is an easy number. It's objective because it's, you can quantify it very easily, but it in a lot of ways is probably selling you short pretty dramatically. Like the cost of the personal protective equipment is a fra- is a pittance compared to the value that it creates in terms of protecting and saving lives and contributing That's, meaningful yeah. impact. So you're, you're way under selling yourself, but I understand why you start there and you have to start somewhere and you're going to get better at it over so time. actually trying to develop out what we're calling an efficiency metric that looks at like the percentage of resources spent mm-hmm. in like how we're conserving resources by so that $100 on aid, how, what are we saving in terms of carbon footprint, in right. terms of human resources, in right. terms of money, like, and in terms of time? But the the benchmarks are incredibly challenging to identify. We're actually working on this right now with an external evaluation team. So how do you determine how we're more efficient than the status quo if there's very little research right. on what the status quo well, is? So you're absolutely right. It's quite complex and it's not something um, that is easily solved. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and once you start getting into these sort of second and third order benefits, what does it mean that somebody didn't get COVID as a result of some PPE that they otherwise wouldn't have had? And we don't even, I think you have good estimates for the developed world in, in, in that, cause this is so new, but you know, you, the more you hear about long haul COVID symptoms and the you know lack of, pro, you know, the reduction in productivity from people who either get seriously sick, the drain on the healthcare system, they're reduced productivity the rest of their life if they have long-haul COVID symptoms, this $2 mask <laughs> that they received chalks up as $2 of value that you've, of impact that you've had when it's actually been potentially tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't want to get, get hyperbolic, but I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that you can have those types of scenarios. And so I, I like this example because it really highlights the trickiness of, it, of impact measurement. And I think the nascency of the field that it's and we've had through our some of our investors, we've also had people come in and try to work with us on it. But there's just the challenge, I think, in the field writ large, which is you're looking at it at the time there were like four of us on staff and our bandwidth to really invest in the amount of time to, to develop that out when we're trying to prove out our business model at the same time. There's just, I think, the number of resources that we really need to look at as a kind of impact investing community and investing in this, we need to pay people from their time, basically, mm-hmm. not just to, to help startups, but the startups too, so that they can allocate the resources accordingly. Yeah, I wish, uh, I, this is an area where I talk, try to talk a lot about, because it's an area that I think impact investors need evolve around, is finding the right balance between 
a reasonable expectation for an organization to prove, if you will, and I'm using air quotes, their, their impact, but also not be getting, getting overly prescriptive about it and not getting overly expecting too much. As you say, the resources you have to put into this roof, and in a lot of cases, that proof is very tenuous to begin with. And oftentimes I would say unnecessary. I, I don't know. For me personally, I don't think I need you to quantify that getting pr- personal protective equipment to refugees in Uganda is valuable. I, I don't know. I know that it's going to be orders of magnitude greater than the cost of <laughs> providing that. And so maybe let's save all the time and effort and resources on quantifying that and just go do more of that. And I, I'm going to be happy maybe not being able to put a dollar, you know, an exact and again, that's just me talking. I know not everybody shares that view, but I, I think we need to get more nuanced about it as investors and knowing when to expect and what to expect and what's reasonable and maybe what's not. I think that's right. Yeah. I didn't realize that was a diatribe that I just went on, but it's it. No, I think you're 100% right. I think there's a real tension, though, between demands around which are fair, right? You're looking at really scaling up investment and supporting the series A, series B. B, people want proof, which is a totally fair thing. If you're investing in with the idea that this is an impact investment, people want to see tangible results of their impact. So balancing that with the reality of how challenging it can be to capture that is quite it's a lot. And I'm not, I'm even thinking about things like our hiring practices or our work culture, all these other benefits that like, come on, it's just impossible to really quantify. But I can tell you our staff turnover is minimal. We have an incredible team. And so I think there's other ripple effects as well, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. Listen, uh, I really appreciate you taking all the time today. Uh, this is just such a Fun conversation. Now, fun is not the right word because of the gravity of the issues you're dealing with, but it's it's very interesting. It's been nice to catch up because it's been way too long since we've gotten to hang out. And maybe I'll just leave it with this last question. Do you have any kind of calls to action? Are there like, if folks are listening that either potential partners and or investors, and you're not raising any capital at the moment, but do you have any calls to action for folks who may be listening that this is relevant to? The one thing I've learned along the way is that having champions has been tremendous and you never know when it'll come in handy. So I'd say anybody reach out if you're just interested in the model, if you're interested in bringing it to your community or seeing how to support this model in any other way, just feel free to reach out. A Zoom call is what we have for the most part still, and I'd be I'd love to talk to your listeners. Awesome. I'll link to the, the website and to your uh, LinkedIn profile if you're up with, for that in the show notes. And uh, with that, thanks so much, Natasha. I'm excited to keep following your journey and and hopefully we'll have you on again in the future to give us an update when uh, Needless has raised another round and is incorporating AI and, and doing cooler things. Great. Thank you, Dave. And you've been an early champion as well. So I'm really grateful for your support along the way. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. We'll chat soon, Natasha. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.